I was born in Puerto Rico, one of the last official colonies on earth. I have a taste, a sense of what colonialism is and what it feels like. All of humanity is still uh, contending with the consequences of European imperialism. It continues to shape us as a globe. Uh, my name is Gibran Rivera. This is my podcast. I am a teacher, a guide, a coach, a facilitator. And here I am inviting you into a conversation with remarkable people who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. In this episode, I interview my friend Cassie Hartendorp. Cassie is one of those Maori people who are actively participating in the decolonization of New Zealand. She's also the director of an organization called Action Station, which is an organization that does crowdfunded grassroots organizing among New Zealand, the New Zealand people. And this conversation I found went to deep, meaningful places. Uh, Cassie is one of those people with an audacious intellect and a generous heart. And every time we talk, it feels like, like we sink into something real, uh, generative. And I'm so glad that I get to share some of that with you. There is something that the original people of the world hold, that indigenous people hold, that the rest of us desperately need in order to be able to contend with the most real challenges facing humanity right now. And so we are blessed anytime they choose to share. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Cassie. Cassie, so excited to be with you. This podcast has been so long in the making. It has. <laughs> It is good to see you. I'll say a couple of words about how we met and the the long winding road here. Uh, the first travel that got canceled when COVID began was uh, Tuesday, who's my my love, my partner, and I were going to Barcelona to meet to meet with the leaders of the Open Network. And you are one of those leaders. And I, to this day, have not yet been to Barcelona. I'm very upset about that. Um, and then we we decided to do this. What it, it, Since COVID has been the most complex thing we've ever done because it was across all time zones. We did this leadership gathering for the leaders of, of the Open Network. And you were one of them. And you were in New Zealand, which is um, one of the toughest time zones, I think, to, to be in. When somebody people are are kind of centering the the, the mm. West, if you will. Um, so, but I remember the impact of your presence and the impact of your thought on the group and on myself. I felt great resonance with many things, as well as um, as just learning completely new things on the way you see the world and. Um, we flirted with doing this a couple of times, and uh, I think it's been almost three years 
now now we get to do it. You still are the executive director of Action Station in New Zealand. And um, I'm just, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you've been? And um, I can I can, I can keep asking you questions and we can be in an open conversation here. A conversation oh, thank you. Heart. It's funny to go back to that meeting that we had because it feels like a really long time ago. And I think the pandemic almost messed with our time frequencies in terms of putting on this different kind of time path. And so it feels like a bit of a blur over two or three years during that time. And it's really nice to be reminded back to that time. And and I just want to say as well that you and Tuesday just did the most phenomenal job of facilitating us in a really difficult cross-cultural, cross-organisational, cross-national conversation and I remember being quite blown away and thinking huh there's there's facilitators who are on this other level like just this completely different level so so my memories of that um, meeting are are really positive because of what you both brought to that so thank you Um, what how, how am I how are things so I'm currently 32 weeks pregnant with my first child um and we are about to go into an election year next year at work and so I'm currently gearing up to get my team ready uh to be able to start off next year without me which feels like a little bit of a anti-climax because I think next year's election in our country is going to be a really fierce kind of um battle between the, the right and the left and um and it feels a bit gutting that I won't be around to be there for the fight in the first instance. But, but um, you know, life is so important and I'm really excited about creating life in such a contradictory time. <laughs> it feels, you know, a lot of people say, oh, a lot of activists say, oh, you know, um, I wouldn't want to bring a child into this world and where we're going. And I just think that um, that's never been the reason that I haven't had children to now. I've just thought that actually what children bring is hope and joy, new life and remind you of, of who has been before and who will be in the future. And so it feels like an interesting time to be embarking on having a child. So my energy is a bit low. I'm feeling a bit raw and vulnerable. But other than that, I'm I'm doing really, really well. Yeah. That is magical. That is magical. I uh, I want to get into that because I feel like uh, although we meet across uh, a spectrum that has been explicitly political and and concerned with mm-hmm. democratic action, one of the things that I'm certain brings us together is um, is that we are on the side of life, uh, and 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 that's why we're doing what we're doing for no other. That's the greater reason. I'll share a, a, a quick story, which is I had not yet had children. I was married. No, I wasn't yet married. Um, but I was with, with the woman who would become the mother of my child. And we were talking about trying for a child. And uh, I went to one of these presentations about climate change. And all of my life, I knew I wanted to have a child, or most of my life. Um, for a certain part of my life, I thought I would be a priest. Um, uh, I don't know how it, that was possible, but um, I did have the thought for, for a long, long childish time. 
But uh, I, I went to ask, I went to this climate change presentation and for the first time I contemplated whether it made sense or not, you know? And I mentioned it to my mother and my mother is a wise woman. She's not on all up in your business kind of mother. She, she creates space for us to be who we are. And, and this time, she wasn't given an inch. She wasn't even, she wasn't even for a second having the argument, right? And she, her no was so clear. And she was like, what will be of the world if good people stop having children? I, I tear up, say, even now, she said, we need flowers in the desert. Uh, that's 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 what she said, you know. And yeah, we're bringing them into a world that we don't know. We don't know what it's going to look like. But our ancestors have been through things that are unimaginable, yes. and and here we are, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I want to. Yeah. Maybe. No, you know, I I just love everything that you're saying. And what's really interesting to me is, I I never planned to have children. And that wasn't on the cards from my own history. And I am, and that's exciting. And it took a long time to get to that point, not for reasons such as climate change or anything else like that. They were just personal reasons. And I have since decided to do that because mostly because my partner is the most incredible man in the world and I can't think of anything better than starting a family with him. But interestingly, while we were going through this very private journey around it, at the same time, I found out that many of the fellow activists and friends and people who I love dearly were all either pregnant or about to have children at the same time. And so I am actually entering into this ready-made community of children. I think it was partly the pandemic, partly our age, whatever it might be, and they're all queer, they're all Indigenous, they're all Pacific, they're all decolonizing, they're parenting actively, they're all coming from a place of life and love and, and really questioning and queering up the idea of what family is. And so I feel just so blessed that not only are we creating a flower in the desert, but while I was so busy kind of planting a seed and doing everything that needed to be done just for our flower, actually many like-minded people were also planting their seeds. And now I know that our baby's going to arrive into the world in a garden, not a solo flower, like actually an existing kind of oasis that will be there to nourish it. So yeah. I love that story from your mum. That's really powerful. Yeah, it just gave me goosebumps again. I, say, I always say, like, when something touches my soul, it's like a my my skin lets me know that there's a truth being spoken, and I'm always grateful for that. And I I'm feeling that right now. I suspect that for the last time in this in this conversation together, I do want to ask you a question, and I will come back to what you're talking about parenting and and reimagining it, particularly um, being an indigenous woman. Um, among indigenous others, right? Indigenous people. But the, the question I, I ask at the beginning of the podcast is what is a belief that you have held to be true? Perhaps something you've even identified fully with that you have either let go of or at least hold more lightly. 
And I ask this question because there is this uh, this polarization, this kind of ideological bunkers forming where ways of thought become almost religious fundamentalism, and uh, it is uh, it is such a such a bind and a it's keeping us from getting where we need to go. And so I always like my listeners to see that there's amazing leaders I'm talking to um, change their minds about important things in order to to continue the process of becoming. So I'm wondering what one of those things might be for you. I really had to scan back because I feel like part of my journey of being an activist is realizing that I cannot just always push the world to transform without considering what transformation needs to happen within my own inner world. And that is Mm -hmm. very frustrating. And some people are very good at that. Some people are very good at flexing and growing and learning and taking on new beliefs and ideas. I don't feel like I'm like, I'm that flexible. I get very stuck on things and I get very committed. I get very in it. However, it is a challenge to myself that we are always in motion. We are always in dialectic. We are always in relationship with our inner world and our outer world. So we can't just go on being the exact same person, no matter what's happening in the outer world and expecting to change it. So it was a hard question because I think I'm, I'm constantly trying to undergo transformation within myself. And I almost had this kind of collection of identities and beliefs over the years that have at times defined me or not defined me or or whatnot. And 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 kind of it was a bit of a journey to dive back into the archives and see what was there. But one that came through for me that I thought was quite clear and easy to understand is that when I was young, I considered myself an atheist from the age that I was about 11 years old. And the reason for that partly mm-hmm. was a few reasons, but partly was because of my experience of Christianity was one that was very patriarchal, very paternalistic, yes. very entrenched in a particular kind of power structure. And I noticed that that this is common for everyone. And I, I conflated spirituality or religiousness or 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 any of those kinds of feelings with with that particular kind of religion and I deem myself an atheist from the age I was about 11 and I really stuck to that for quite some time I don't identify as an atheist at all anymore that has been completely shed and the reason for that is actually because of my journey around um indigenization or decolonization that that forced me to confront what I believe I'd held about myself yeah that's beautiful that's beautiful well what, what people don't it's like it, it I, I stumbled a bit when you said that because you know we started saying before before recording we started with an invocation and and we we prayed together, and I, I said my prayer, and then you spoke yours, and it was this uh, this beautiful incantation that 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 seemed to yeah, that just kind of I felt it steer within me. I could feel the transmission, 
when these things don't transmit unless we hold them in our heart, you know? They're just words unless they are in our bodies too. So um, I can tell that, that <laughs> you're in a very different place. Uh, and that's, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah it's, I'm, so, I'm surprised. And, I, and that's the miracle of it all. That's the miracle of it all, I think. And, and, and to me, and maybe forgive me, some of this is, is projection, but I just, again, over those days together, we were exploring some some big questions, and I just noticed this way in which you you have a, a well developed ideological frame, right, and um, um, and 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 also this authentic indigeneity that that kind of moves uh, through you and makes itself known, not just as like a an identity that you assert. You say, I, you know, you're not one of those people that it starts every sentence with. As an indigenous woman, or I mean, like as a Puerto Rican man, right? Like that's not what we're talking about. It's it's, it's more like a way, a way of being, and 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 the combination of those things, uh, I think, can be striking, right? The fact that you are gearing up for an election and a leadership transition, which is never easy, uh, at a at a major election, right? In a in a kind of Western style democracy, while also holding uh, uh, decolonization as a principle. These are these are these are things that that are not no. simple to to make meaning of, right? It's so, it's so easy to just oversimplify mm. one or the other. And I'm just wondering, what can you share about about that journey? Probably the contents of a PhD, if I'm honest, and an unfinished one at that. <laughs> I yes. It's making me think of, okay, so first of all, on indigeneity, actually, where do I even begin? I'm like, where do I even begin? My first thought, because I'm going back to that meeting that we had, I haven't done lots of work on an international level. My commitment has primarily been to my, my people and the place that I come from, because I believe I know that place well. And I come from a country where a lot of our people travel overseas because there's brighter and better opportunities there for work, for life, whatever it might be. And so very early on in my life, I decided I'm committed to being right here and doing the work here. So being in international spaces is very new to me. And I actually have felt a lot of trepidation going into international spaces because our country, New Zealand, or as we call Aotearoa, is treated as being this little tiny set of islands at the bottom of the world that maybe people know because Lord of the Rings was filmed here or something else. And we are very rarely treated as a, as a site of strategic geopolitical importance. We are just these little islands at the bottom of the world. And so when I go into international spaces, I feel already really nervous about what I'm bringing into that space because I think I don't actually have what other people have, you know. I see people from other places as highly sophisticated and got all of this kind of, um, you know, worldly knowledge that, that feels unattainable when you live in islands at the bottom of the world. So... Going into these meetings is sometimes quite nerve-wracking for me. But when I got there, what I realized is that I kept defaulting very easily 
to indigenous ways of being and not in this kind of um, intangible we we wa wa way. Like, I mean that our ancestors here in Aotearoa had, as my dear um, guide, Wairiti Rostenberg often talks about, she says that our, our ancestors had highly sophisticated processes and protocols that enabled us to live together. And I reverted back to those. I realized that actually, for example, we have had heaps of our rituals destroyed. I'm really big on ritual. I'm still learning about it, but I'm big on it because what I've worked out is that rituals enable us as humans, as social beings, to be able to do what we need to do, essentially. And colonization in our country attacked many of our rituals. Well, it attacked the social fabric of our society, right? It attacked many of our rituals. And uh, the late India Moana Jackson often talked about how some of those rituals that have retained is what we call our porphyry, which is a meeting protocol. It's how we meet each other. And our tangihanga, or a funeral protocol, how we farewell the dead. So many we used to have rituals for everything, but most of those have been lost or forgotten. Not all, and some people still keep them alive, there's no doubt. But on the the main rituals we've kept is how to meet each other and how to farewell each other. And our meeting process, you can if you, if you know, if you're Māori, you'll know. You cannot do it in an hour. Sometimes you can't even do it in a day. The meeting process takes just to meet and see each other and to be present and to connect takes at least about four four to five hours. And it involves all these different things that we do. And some of those things include, at first, making sure we're not friend or foe, so sussing each other out. It includes passing over the realm of our war gods, where battle may be done back in the day when we were more likely to fight each other, although sometimes we still do a little bit more metaphorically than physically. We pass over the realm of the war gods and then we enter the house together. When we enter the house, we are in the realm of Mm -hmm. the gods of peace. And so at that point, we are able to talk. And when we talk, a lot of the purpose of talking is greeting each other, situating who we are, into the realm of the universe and allowing ourselves to acknowledge where we might meet, where we might connect, where we may be family, because many of us are family and we can trace our connections through across the islands. So we establish how we connect, not how we are different, how we may be the same. And then we do that together. And then there's other things, there's other parts, I'm skipping over it. And then we share a meal. And we cannot finish our meeting together unless we have a meal together because that takes us, we consider, from the sacred, the sacredness, kind of like, it's kind of like breaking the ice, you know? Before the ice is broken, things are a bit cold and detached. When you've had the meal, you break bread together, you become one together. So I share all of this to say that Our culture has been taught to us that it is primitive, that it is stupid, that we are savages, all these kinds of things. And yet what I realized when I went into an international space and spoke together, what we needed was protocols. And that was some of what you and Tuesday were doing, right? Like you innately knew that that was necessary. And then I have been at other times when I realized, well, we love song. 
And song is really important to us for a variety of reasons. And song is one of the reasons song is really important is because we use it to, we say, why it's a total call. When someone has spoken, we acknowledge what they've said through a song. It is, it is about support. We're basically saying, I got you. I've got your back. That's why I'm singing for you. And at the last open event that we had, I witnessed that there was not enough acknowledgement going on. So, of course, I got up and sang a song for one of the women in the room. And, and through this process, I've realized that our, our culture has so many facets and necessary things that kept us going alive, nourished, um, vibrant for many, many centuries, possibly more. And, and those tools and those processes are still very much necessary today. So I've forgotten the original question, but that's my answer. This is it. This is this is you just like yeah, the 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 level of resonance with and this is why I wanted to interview you. Just I just it's this this very clear sensation that from completely different world islands, you know, we have somehow ended up on on on, on this path and so much it's so much of my understanding of the work I'm doing is it's, it's captured by the term a forward-facing remembering, mm. right? It's this idea that that we need, like, it's like if you look at the people still running the world, you know, still majority men, still white, um, what you see is uh, the reign of what, you know, this brilliant thinker, I'll send you a link to his work, and I'm actually preparing a, a talk, kind of, teaching some of what I'm learning from him, but he calls it like propositional knowing, right? Which is all conceptual. And you have like these heads and this like, this like, it's like this floating heads interacting with each other at the level of abstraction, right? And, and what ritual does is gets us into the embodied enactment, right? It brings us back to our animal bodies and our, and our earthbound self at a time when the earth is what we've forgotten, right? we've got to have forgotten our place. And so, uh, and you are absolutely right. The holders, the holders of these ways are indigenous people. They just are. It just, it's just an unquestionable thing. I, I do some healing work and I, and I, and I host ceremony and I, and I have an altar and I have many objects on that altar from different spiritualities that have impacted me. And one of the objects is a ram horn. And when people come, I say, this is here to honor white European shamanism because it was taken, it was taken out of all of us. You know, we all come from a people that remember that everything is connected to everything else, that, that that the river has a spirit and so does the mountain, that when a bird flies above, it means something, that when you talk to a tree and you pause long enough to listen, you will hear it talk to talk back. And and this is true for them, right? Like the Romans, somebody kicked it out of the Romans and then they went and kicked it out of everybody else. And then they went and kicked it out of everybody else, you know? And it's just like, wow. And, and how, how do we remember? And I'm just, I'm so grateful for the way you articulated that. I'm aware that 
one of the key ways in which in which that ritual was specially targeted because it was it, it, because of its potency, right? And it was it was mm-hmm. heresy, right? By, by it, it was considered like ungodly when it was actually the most godly of things. Um, I want to ask you. You mentioned uh, a guide, which I um, somebody that I that seems to me I infer teaching you some of your ways. Um, can you tell me about that relationship and, and who this person is? As how do you hold it? How is it transmitted? Will you be a guide someday? Is that is that? I'm just curious mm. as to the, as to um, how this transference is held. Yeah. You know? So thank you for asking. So Waititi, who I mentioned earlier, yeah. we first met during an active campaign where a number of indigenous people here were what we would say is occupying or protecting Indigenous land that had been stolen from their people a long time ago and was planned to turn into some special housing developments where basically millionaires were going to be living on a very sacred site that was important to to their people. And it was mostly led by young people. And if you're from Aotearoa, you'll know it because I think it changed our our world in many ways, it was called Protect Ihumatau. And some very fierce, intelligent, incredible young Māori people really pushed it forward alongside a wider community, alongside many of their whānau. And I ended up setting up a solidarity group in our capital city. And the reason was because I, I did not want these incredible people with an incredible cause to be sidelined as something just happening over here. So the purpose was to take their battle to our capital city so that the decision makers knew that people around the country cared about this issue and were prepared to to support these people basically on principle. And so I organised a series of, of, of meetings alongside some other incredible peace activists and Waititi walked in at one point and started joining in the conversation. And most of us were young people. This group was a real mix, but it was mostly Pākehā and New Zealand Europeans, but also heaps of um, young people from different backgrounds who weren't Māori all yearning to be in solidarity with Māori. They just knew that's what they wanted to do. And why did she rocked up? And I don't even know why. But she was like, okay, I'm here to do some work. And she became our our kind of spiritual guide throughout that, that time. And what we realised is that we were both, she put language to it. I didn't have the language but she did, and she said, what I think that you're doing is you're trying, she, she said, you know, back in the day, our, the spiritual and the political were were interlinked, were completely interwoven, and that has come apart over the years. And she says, I think what you're trying to do is recouple the spiritual and the political together in, in practical ways. And she said, and, and, and that's actually what I'm, writing about and working on so I'd love to be in conversation together and learn from each other because I think we're doing the same kind of thing and I was like huh okay because I didn't have words for it I was just feeling my way around 
trying to work things out. And since then, right. we've we've um, yeah, we've we meet, we talk, we share, we learn from each other. I had a it wasn't a baby shower; it was a peepee party, which is a baby party, but um, we were, it was pretty much the same thing. And she came along, and she actually um, opened up our space together. We had a sharing space to be able to share things to bring baby into the world and and she opened it up and she sang the most beautiful songs she does the most beautiful prayers and songs and she did that for us and and so we have a relationship where we're always trying to bring these things back together and use protocol and process and ritual to do that and we may not see each other for many months but when we come back together we will share what we've learned yeah what a blessing no it's so it's so important to have that that transmission and 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 often often hard often hard to find it thank you for the gift of your attention if there's something here that resonates for you something that feels true and good think about a friend that you could share it with we curate for each other and that's the only way the good stuff spreads I wanted to ask you, you mentioned as you prepare for motherhood, right? And in the context of indigeneity and, and decolonization, you also use terms like queering parenting, right? And so so somebody from a traditional culture, I wouldn't say indigenous, but rooted in, in, in an older time, you know, my parents, my grandparents, great-grandparents, you know, just a different time, there were still shaped by colonization, you know? And uh, and so there's always this tension between like this movement forward, uh, this opening up, some of it is just a remembering of lost parts of us. And some of it is actually new, you know? I think, I think sometimes we overstate Yes. Uh, you know, all indigenous people that had no, that had no gender, like things like that. It's like, well, I'm not sure that that's that's the way to, to move the argument forward. But but how do you how do you work with that, with this fidelity, right, to the, your culture and this understanding of 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 what you want? Like, like you said, like the queering of parenting, that is a very potent statement. There's a very potent intention. Um, I would love to hear more about that. Yes, I'm very lucky that within our country, we have a very active LGBTIQ Indigenous community that has been around for some decades now and prompted by just incredible um, queer or lesbian or gay LGBTQ, we say takatapui here, um, not everyone, but many, we have a word for it that brings those worlds together. It has been a very active struggle since particularly around the time of what people consider gay liberation. So I enter into a world where a lot of that, that work has already been done. I am a part of the takatapui community and for about eight to 10 years, most of my work was youth work for young LGBTIQ people. 
And so it's a community that is very dear to my heart. I'm a part of it and I've worked in it as well. And so why I say that is because it makes it easier when the people before you have really done a lot of the hard work. So I'm a part of a cultural performance group, not as active as I once was because I've moved away, that is called Tifanafana and is made up of many older um, LGBTIQ Māori people who just exist in their absolute naturalness. (laughs) There's no questioning it. And they're so strong in that, that it makes it very difficult to argue against that being something not Māori. It certainly ha- there are certainly mostly people from the Christian fundamentalist religious kind of area who are Maori who have have said that being queer or trans is um, a European concept that was important here. There's, there's a few a few people who say that, but for the most part, no, it's not even talked about because there's been so much work done in this area to 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 bring these things back together. And and I, like you, I, I feel very similar. You know, I spent a lot of my time, I went back to an Indigenous learning institution. And one of the reasons I went back was because an older whakawaihine or, or trans woman, for lack of a better word, said to me, I'm pretty sure there are manuscripts that talk about trans women as having distinct roles pre-colonisation. And some of those roles were diplomats and peacemakers and and these other ideas. And so I actually went back to this Indigenous Learning Institution to find those manuscripts. And when I got there, one of the first things I was told was that the library was burnt down and many of, of the old manuscripts had been lost. And, of course, I was just like, oh, my gosh. And so I scraped together what I could find, and the whole purpose of it was to find some kind of evidence that trans people in particular, or non-binary people, have always existed within Indigenous culture. And I was dead set on this. And, you know, to be fair, I put together a reasonably well-articulated case for it. And and I still believe that to be true. But at the same time as well, there's there's something about if we if we focus so hard on proving that we existed once as justification that we can exist now, I think that's a slippery slope because the reality is is that we will always be changing and evolving and and I think that our culture enables us to change with like our our protocols allow us to grow and to evolve and to flex and all of those kinds of things and if we hold too rigidly about there being proof that we existed, I think we missed the point that it doesn't matter if there was proof. We still have every right to exist as we are now. And I would not, the queer woman that I am now is not the queer woman that I would have been pre-colonization. Do you know what I mean? And and, and part of that is not just because of colonization. It is because of the incredible work around the world of people from marginalised communities who have articulated themselves into existence that has therefore influenced me to articulate myself. So one of my favourite authors is Audre Lorde, you yes. know. Um, and, and, and Audre, uh, 
I love everything that she's written as a, as a lesbian writer and activist, I think, you know, writing a few decades ago. And so my identity has been in part shaped by these other people around the world. And it wasn't all just colonization. It was also the parts of us being able to articulate ourselves together and in relationship with each other. So if I was to just hold on to this is who I would have been pre-colonization, then that misses out on all of those beautiful, incredible cross-articulations around the world that have happened because of us being in relationship to each other, yeah. if that makes sense. That is beautiful and that is fire. And yeah, I'm just going to just take a second to receive the potency of what you've shared. And honor it as such is that it's deeply moving and uh, strongly, strongly spoken. So I just want to receive that. And, you know, look, I happen to have to be on one end of the spectrum. You know, I'm pretty much like as cis hetero as any guy can be. I, I think when I, I have, I have a sensitive heart and and all of those things. But, but I think you can be all of that. I, I'm not trying to say I'm like a, a a dude's dude or some kind of patriarchal behemoth. But but I'm a cis hetero dude, you know. So there, I personally don't have the slightest question that that trans and queer folks have always existed. I think where we get into trouble is where we start to say that. Or all original peoples welcomed always, right? It's like we don't know that, right? Like, like prejudice, bias, even imperialism, right? Like precedes the latest wave coming out of Europe, right? Like, like patriarchy, all of it is it's it's has been present. And I think that's when we start, that's part of where we make self-defeating arguments. And I'm not saying that many people had a better perspective than than we have in the in the West today, but certainly many people had a worse one. And it's just it, it, that's what I mean when we start to be like, no, like you're actually taking away the 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 the, the full and flailing humanity of our ancestors, which is mm. it is precisely because the humanity has flailed that we get the songs and the stories and the dances and the rituals in the first place to come back to our rightful place, to remember how we are supposed to be because humans across time tend to forget, you know? It's just, it's just <laughs> what happens. It's just what happens. Uh, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, there's, there's actually been a bit of a positive turn in this phenomena since I started doing the podcast and certainly since you and I met. Um, but I know you and I made contact around what we might call cancel culture, what we might call um, the culture that kind of needed a trigger warning for everything, a kind of needs or a hypersensitivity and a, a, a set a set of cultural tropes that are that 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 have been making their way in social movement spaces um with the best of intentions but actually really limiting possibility right because um 
it was just hard to talk, period. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Without your language being policed. And, and there's been a number of, I think that we have found better ways to, to question that. I know for me, I have, have oriented so much of my work kind of away from that and as a way to create an alternative that, that, that continues to hold what is valued there, but to, to hold it in a different way so that it doesn't feel like religious fundamentalism, which is part of what I grew up with. <laughs> and and, and, uh, and uh, I remember resonating with you on that. And, you know, since then, Adrian Murray Brown wrote, We Will Not Cancel Us. And mm. just this week, um, Maurice Mitchell of the Working Families Party wrote a brilliant piece with a misleading title on, on resilient organizations that, I, that I'm certain you will enjoy. Uh, we talked about it today, um, Tuesday, and I lead a community of practice on racial justice and climate philanthropy, and we brought it in. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm overstating my, my question here, but my point is there's been great progress. Uh, but my point is that I remember you and I connecting around that, being like there's something here that's getting in the way of what we actually want. And I'm wondering what is uh, where you are on that arc. Are you making a similar observation? Are you seeing progress? Are you, find, are you yourself finding ways to work around the more negative parts of, of that tendency? Mm. <laughs> That's such a good question. And I think I've read that article. I think a friend shared the article that you're talking about and I just loved it. So that's another case in point, like how cool is it that we're also on different sides of the world experiencing different things and and also experiencing similar antidotes? I just think that's so cool. And I think, you know, what do I want to say about this? I've thought about this a lot, okay? I I get really um I get really activated around cancel culture because it doesn't it, it it kind of conflicts with some of my my deeply held beliefs about people. And so what it means is I've had to interrogate and question my own <laughs> perspectives on it because I'm like, okay, am I just projecting some of my shit right here or or is this like a useful contribution and I don't speak publicly on it enough what I do try to do is create environments that do not do not rely on cancel culture being the main vehicle for how we, re we relate to each other I think now there's a couple of and, and I just want to say as well like this is part about this cross-migration, cross-articulation, because there was a time when I was like, oh, you know, I really appreciate all of the incredible feminists and authors and writers and activists that have come out of Turtle Island um, or North America that are articulating oppression in really precise, clear, sharp, cutting ways. I, I wouldn't be who I am without them. But there have also been times when I'm like, oh, my God, this is some reductive stuff, man. And now it's everywhere. Like it's it's kind of become the common understanding around anti-oppressive activism in many places around the world. Yeah. 
and having to kind of unpick that a little bit because I can I can tell now when people because we've been through such an we're going through such an, a re-indigenizing process in Aotearoa it becomes easier to see where ideas come from somewhere else versus where they come from here and the challenge of re-indigenization is to remember ourselves back into being and all of those protocols and processes and yet a lot of those ideas that are coming from overseas around oppression are, are not untrue they are all true but I noticed that some of these things clashed together. And and so part of it is swimming around in this and thinking, oh, okay, how 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 was this moving us forward? Like where are we going from here? And I do think that one of the things that happens within within activist spaces is that people really get white, rigid. And, and orthodox about wanting to have the right ideas. I've written about this actually, and it says on a piece called "It's Not Enough to Have the Right Ideas," yes. and the whole purpose of it was saying it's not enough to have the perfect idea about how the world works, or even the perfect solution. It is about how we are together, how we are in yeah. relationship together, and how we work yeah. together. Because I know lots of people who have the right ideas, they can't work with another person, you know. <laughs> How are they going to bring their idea into fruition as one person? And so I'm often trying to move us. At at my heart, I'm an organizer, okay? Like I'm a community organizer. That's who I am. That's a part of my identity. And I'm often trying to work out how do we organize together in communities and collectivity to build our power in order to be able to achieve a goal. And the role of the individual is huge, you know. Our cultural revitalization strategy was, in, in our um, iwi, in our area, was really prompted by an individual, I will say that. But if, if he didn't have a whole community around him, we would not have re-indigenized and revitalized our culture in our area. It would not have been done. We need each other. We absolutely yeah. need each other. And so in my work, I'm often trying to get to the point where, like, cool, someone needs to be cancelled okay, or things aren't going well here or whatever and trying to move us to, but we still need each other. And we might not need that annoying person who needs to be cancelled right now, like they could go into timeout or whatever. I don't know. I'm not really big on that. But what I find is that when something becomes a culture, what cancel culture now has, that starts to filter and impact everyone. And when I was doing activism about 10 or 12 years ago, what I noticed was that everyone was dominated by fear, okay? Everyone was too afraid to do anything for the fear that it was the wrong thing and somebody was going to tell them off. This was pre-cancel culture. Cancel culture wasn't a word before that, um, before then. And what I noticed was that it meant inaction. It meant cynicism. Right. It meant silence. It meant pain. It meant disempowerment. And so when something becomes the culture that people are too afraid to say anything or too afraid to do anything, I don't know if that gets us closer to where we need to go. So a lot of my work has been about working through that fear so we can do the stuff to make things happen. The second part of your question, I'm just going to run into this because obviously I'm quite passionate about about it, is that I have been trying things over the years. Like, yeah, like literally like the last, 13 years 
a lot of my work is trying to get people through that fear to then take collective action together. That's kind of my bread and butter of what I'm trying to do. And what I've, I've realized that there's things that, that work, you know, I've, I've realized that, um, that people really need a place to belong. Belonging is really, really important. Like we're yearning for it. I've realized that if you create places of belonging, they can mean a lot. Um, Connection is crucial. We have this thing within our indigenous culture where it's a bit of a faux pas to go to a meeting and to introduce yourself and say, hi, I'm Cassie and I'm the director of Action Station. You don't talk about your job. You don't talk about your job. You, You talk about the mountain that you came from. You talk about the river that your people came from. You talk about the land that is... Is, is where you come from. You, we, we literally have a format of how we introduce ourselves that starts starts in different places with different people. But for us, the mountain, the river, the streams, the land, the the wider group of people, the smaller group of people, um, your parents, your grandparents, and you list all of these connections, you know? And that's more important than what your job title is. That trumps who your job title is. Oh. And so... For me, one thing that I do is I try to make sure we're always doing that when we greet each other rather than just going straight to the work, you know? So there's lots of different things that I've tested over the years. Some have been better than others. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I do think, I think we are yearning for a way to be together to create the world we want to create, but we often don't know how to do it. And so part of the task is working that out together and moving where we can beyond the cancel culture. That is beautiful. One other point. One other thought, sorry. One other thought is that... Drop Drop your wisdom. One other thought there is that, you know, the act of cancelling someone, like I get it, you know, and there are... I think there's different forms of of, of cancelling that get lumped in into a culture, right? And what I will say is that there are times within our movements when terrible behavior needs to be named and dealt with because it's it's causing a rupture somewhere along the way. And if that rupture isn't named and the behavior isn't named, we cannot go on. Like it will interfere in the collective work. It is corrosive. It is violent. It is horrific. And there are times when that needs to, the can of worms needs to come out. But I don't think we can confuse that for every single instance of someone saying the wrong word or doing the wrong thing. Um, I think there's there's different different forms of, of what needs to happen to realign us on our collective path forward. Yeah. That is, that is so potent. And again, just... Just pausing long enough to receive that because everything that you're saying, you know, but especially how we are, what we're doing is finding ways to relate to each other so that we can get through this together and how counter this approach is. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Marianne Caba's work on transformative justice, which is so respected right now and it's getting so much attention. But, but, what did I want to what did I want to lift here that moved me so much about what you said? Well, I wanted to say 
referring back to the to the religious fundamentalism of it is like um, people want to belong. People want to be together. People want to be in community. What is happening is when we are together based on, again, what I'm referring to, propositional knowing or abstracted thought or ideological frames exclusively, what we do is we build a togetherness that is quite frail because it is held together by the threat of exile. And the threat of exile is a primal fear. Mm-hmm. And so it yeah. just, it just, I was, I was with my, I was with my, my, my son recently and, you know, he, he, he's 11 and he goes to a school that extorts many of these values. It's a beautiful school. I love the school or for it. And, and, and then, and then their idea, you, you can feel how some ideas are unspeakable and, and I was making room for me and him to have a conversation about thoughts that maybe were not haveable in school. And and my, my, my son is awesome. Like, he's just like a very strong, courageous young person. And, but he kind of asked me to turn, to bring my voice down. And we were in, my, in our house. There was nobody, right? And I just took the opportunity to be like, that's it. That's what we got to pay attention to together. Not just you and me, but all of us. Like, what is dependent when there is something that is supposed to be good, that claims righteousness, but pushes us to whisper what we're actually thinking? That is not anything that's going to get us towards freedom, you know? Um, of course, don't get me wrong. There's, there are prayers that we say quietly and all of that. But like, there's not like that ideas that cannot be expressed because someone else might hear. That, that tells you a lot about a, a flaw in, in the cultural context, even if it's one that is predominantly good, you know? Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I, if, I think know. just also thinking on that, I like what you're saying around whispers. You know, I, I, I come from a political tradition, so I started off in socialist groups where the the norm was you debate the shit out of everything, you know, like anything is on the table and you debate it and then you find the right political line and then that's what it is. And, and <laughs> which I, I understand, but I also think there's something about um, what I'm always challenging myself to do is have frank conversations about political strategy or political work. And if if you're claiming to be someone who is an activist or doing the work, then I think that we need to to be able to be willing to have critical conversations with each other, but also creative conversations with each other. So yeah. I come back with my team quite a lot and I often run <laughs> events and I will ask people to bring their creativity rather than their their criticalness and that seems highly controversial because you know you need the criticalness but what I think is sometimes we get out of whack and cancel culture encourages criticality It, it, it rewards you for for the better critique the better um clapback on twitter in the shortest amount of words or whatever it might be um and don't get me wrong I also think that cancel culture is a valid expression of marginalized people with the tools they have and have access to, 
to be able to challenge oppression that is real and that they see, okay? This is what I mean by there's many different elements of it. But our criticality, you know, cannot be the only aspect of our of our life force. The creative aspect is so necessary. And when one kind of culture takes over and overshadows the other, what I think we lose is that creative nature. And so in my team, I'm often encouraging people to be silly and goofy. I think activists take ourselves way too seriously. And then we get pushed into wanting to be the most right, earnest kind of person in the room. And it's dry. It's so dry. It's so awkward. And I talk all the time. But I'm like, how do we be juicy around this? How do we acknowledge that? a lot of our activists were were joyful incredible creative um you know would say tutu like a like a you know um like troublemakers like playing with things and so I think that that we need to keep those things in a bit of balance because that that is that's what keeps us that's what keeps life force flowing That's yes. what reminds us of why we do it, and and we have to keep both of those things there. Yeah, that's it. That's beautiful. Thank you. It's so aligned. It's so so aligned with that. I'm trying to live my world into my way into and bring others into. It's it's phenomenal. Um, uh, we're moving towards a close, but there was there's the question that's going to come out of left field, uh, <laughs> but I, I have to ask it. Um, and this could be even this could be kind of urban myths, maybe maybe this is not true. But what we hear about a lot is um, billionaires, Silicon Valley billionaires, um, making bunkers in New Zealand, right? To survive the apocalypse, right? And just like the, the ludicrousness of it all, right? A friend of mine said, think about that. Like you would rather spend your money making a bunker for the end of the world than redistributing it to others. <laughs> it's like, a, and again, I'm not sure if this is factually true that New Zealand is indeed. I have heard it speak, I, I have heard it actually from some Silicon Valley guy, guy that it, it's this idealized place where they're going to survive, you know? Um, are you aware of this of this mythos? Uh, and it's so like, <laughs> what is your comment, you know? <laughs> I'm not aware of it, but it doesn't surprise me. And I think the reason it doesn't surprise me is because, yeah, I think I think our country has taken on this kind of like mythical, mythical kind of thought that a mythical story that is that is appealing to white billionaires. <laughs> like I think that it's kind of a bit of a haven or something like that for people. And so it wouldn't surprise me if that's what they're planning to do. It wouldn't surprise me if that's what they're already doing. What cracks me up is that they will also be um, hunkering down into a country that has been very serious about its decolonization journey um, and, and very serious about our relationship to land, relationship to the climate, relationship to our oceans and our mountains and so on. And so I'm I'm curious about how how that will go down because I don't think it might be exactly the kind of um, you know 
kind of colonial haven that they might think it is. And I'm curious about how our Indigenous people will respond to that when when they come with their, um, yeah, what is it called? Doomsday prepping, eh? Because some of it can get really... It can get really individualistic, right? And and so they're going to enter into, I think, an environment that might be a little bit different to what they expect. So I'm very right. curious how that will go down. Dig when they start to dig your land. Let's see. Let's see how. Let's see how your people are going to oh, yeah. take it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, we'll move to towards the close. I, I always like to ask, and I'll give you an opportunity to say anything else that has gone unsaid that is in your heart, anything about your work or, or anything like that. And, but if you don't mind, you know, before that, I always like to invite the person, if they consent, to, to do a little time traveling with me, right? And so I invite, mm-hmm. I like to invite the person to just like leap 20 years into the future, you know, and, 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 and be yourself and Maybe maybe there's enough time for a generation and a generation to come into being, and you've succeeded in some things and failed in others. And ideally, someone like you uh, will have earned wisdom along the way. Just kind of visualize yourself, but rather than describe yourself, then I'll let you keep that mystery to your own imagination. My question is. What would she say to you now? What would your older, wiser self offer you as advice and offer us as advice? Hmm. I think that she would offer something around love. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, and but I I feel like that has been definitely a core lesson in my life about to hold on to the love no matter what. And I have a feeling that the next 20 years are going to be eventful mm-hmm. and they're going to, I mean, you just, you talked about it earlier with the doomsday prepping bunker stuff. I think that we're going to enter into a time of, of either perceived or real scarcity or fear or threat as people actually start to accept climate change. Right. And I think that collectively and psychologically and spiritually that's going to do a number on us because we're not very good at processing things at a collective level because we've gotten rid of all most of our rituals. Um, and so I think that we're going to enter into a time that, that we see some very polarizing things. And, and I think that's already happening in many countries, but our country is often a little bit more protected from it because we're a bit smaller. But I think that we will find that here. And I think part of the antidote to that polarization and panic and individualism and survival and scarcity will be love. And I think the older self will be calling on me even in the times when I'm really annoyed at our fellow human beings, which yeah. I 
I am. There are many times when that happens. I think she will just be going back to what does love look like in this yeah. setting. Yeah. yeah. How do I hold that? I can see that. I can see that. I can see her in you already. And I can feel her in you already. <laughs> it's beautiful and good. Um, is there anything that you want to leave us with that I didn't ask or that you just want to bring to our awareness? I don't think there is. I think this conversation has been really full and went to some of the places I was hoping to go to, but I didn't know it, and yet you led us there. I don't think I have anything else to say. This has been great. Yeah, it's been a real gift. I definitely feel just the presence of spirit here and and us trying to follow something that uh, that is good. And, you know, I'm really moved the way you have asserted over and over again that your country is reclaiming its indigeneity in a very powerful and successful way. And that just, that makes me so hopeful because that's exactly what is needed. And one of the things that is important to me and that I think is happening here between us, that's why I'm going to mention it as we say goodbye, is that sometimes we think about our ancestors, right? As people that knew things that we have forgotten. And that's certainly true. Um, but at the same time it wasn't like there's never been a time right when everybody know exactly what to do perfectly right it was always people trying to remember what their grandfather told them or their grandmother told them right and like coming together and opening up to it and, and in other times there might have been other people you know and, and you seem to have more of a culture a holding for it but it is, it is this, right? It, this is the finding of our way. This is the process of remembering. And, and we're not the only ones that have had to. And it's good to know that too. And it's good to be doing it together. Yeah. Can I add something then that you just prompted? Yeah, bring us home. So about a year ago, I moved back to um, to be close to my ancestral land. One of the cool things about decolonization here is that you have this generation of younger people, probably millennials and a bit younger, who innately know that part of our decolonizing job is to reconnect with our family and our extended families and our land. And these are things that are interwoven. And it's just beautiful. It's incredible because to me that is partly the anti the antidote. Yes. And it's the antidote around the climate because when we know our land, when we know our oceans, when we know our rivers, our mountains, our streams, we know what's going on with them and the health of them and how we might collectively respond. So it's just such a cool part of our decolonization journey. And and I'm blessed to be one of those people who has moved back to be close to their ancestral land. And and what I've really, there's actually not a day that doesn't go by when I don't feel so, so deeply grateful for the people who came before me, who in 1975 created a cultural revitalization strategy called Whakatupurangarua Mano, Generation 2000, that said, 
We are on the verge of cultural extinction. Almost nobody under 30 speaks our native language. We will we will struggle into the future to live as Māori and be Māori. And yet they got together and they put together a 25-year plan. I love it. The Virgo in me just loves this, this planning <laughs> business. And, and I know that at that time it must have been really hard. It must have been really fearful. It must have felt like such a risk. This is 1975 when, you know, the oppression towards Indigenous people was particularly strong. And yet they did it anyway. And now I get to live in the hub of our iwi. So I live in a place that is partly where this plan was focused. I live a five-minute walk away from an Indigenous learning institution started by some of my family that now takes in thousands of Indigenous people every year to teach them about themselves and ourselves and each other, but also equipping us with what we need into the future. That's five minutes down the road. We have four kōhanga reo, which are um, early childhood learning. They, they're, they're called language nests. So they're cultural language immersion childcare centres, four of them within walking distance to me. When I go into the little township, there are people speaking our native language naturally everywhere. I just said last night to my partner, when, we walk, when I walk into the local supermarket, every single time without fail, I will see at least one person who is Māori who has um, Indigenous facial tattoos, which have wow. been brought back over, over the past few years especially. And so I've seen and I experienced and I live the fruits of what the people before me thought. And they were not perfect people. None of our yeah. ancestors or elders are perfect people. That's right. But they were brave. They were courageous. They still stepped up. They were willing to work together for a shared cause despite everything, with no money, with nothing, and they still made all of this happen. And so that's why I believe ultimately that the change we hope for is possible because I live and breathe it and I'm the beneficiary of it every single day. So, yeah, our, our ancestors were not always perfect and our elders were not always perfect, but they've made hard decisions in sure. difficult conditions of their times in yeah. order to take care of the people who will come yeah. after us. And so that's what we need to do too. A miracle. Thank you so much. Felt that all over my body again. And yeah, it's just telling me like, pick yourself up with your imperfection and have a future vision. And remember, remember what, you, just keep going. Just keep going and find your people. And I feel like you're one of my people. And it's been years since we've been in contact, but I just knew that this was going to be good. And thank you for making the time and honoring that connection. I can't wait uh, for people to get to know you and hear and hear your voice and, and what is moving through you. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. Many blessings. Signal versus noise. There's so much competing for our attention. And I am so glad that you stayed with us through the end of the podcast. It should mean that you're finding something meaningful here. Hopefully, something worth sharing. And so I'm asking again that you think of somebody who would be touched by this conversation, who wants to be a part of it some way, 
It is a decentralized conversation. It is a way in which we're changing ourselves by leaning in towards each other in places like this and in the exchange of these ideas. So who's a person or two that will be specially moved by what you've heard here today? Send them a text, an email. Let them know we're here. We're not trying to reach everybody. But we want to reach the right people. We want to keep having this decentralized conversation. We want to keep working on getting right to the edge of the evolution of consciousness and culture to see what we find here together. Thank you again for being a part of this. Liking the podcast helps. Subscribing is definitely a good thing. Feedback is always welcomed. Stay in touch.